Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week we've got a whole whack of shows and movies to discuss. I'm Jeff Braun. Yes, as one great cop show ends, another begins. We'll talk Fargo and True Detective. We'll also talk Emmys and offer some final thoughts now that we've seen all five episodes of Marvel's Echo. One of the most acclaimed cop shows of the last decade premiered its fourth season this past week. It's True Detective Night Country. This case. No answers. Should send this thing back to Anchorage. Hey, Chief. What's this? I've seen that before. This tattoo was on Annie's body. So what? It's the same case. No one stops to draw on their own forehead while they're freezing to death. So maybe the killer was out there on the ice with them. Huh? A killer. True Detective first aired in January 2014. That first season starred Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson and caught the world by storm. It was a first-rate cop show and gave McConaughey's career a much-needed boost at the time. And while it maybe was not the first example, it did really signal to all the A-list movie stars out there that it was okay to star in a TV series. And the landscape, of course, has not been the same since. Season 2, not popular. I've actually never seen it, but it does not have a good reputation. It's probably not as bad as its reputation. Season 3, I I guess landed somewhere in the middle. I thought it was great, thanks to Mahershala Ali and an unexpectedly great performance from Stephen Dorff, who had been relegated to B-movies for years. That was five years ago already. And now we have season four, Night Country. There's a new showrunner this time around, but it still feels like True Detective, I thought. Reacher and Fargo and a lot of other cop shows, of course, have elements of humor and fun, but with True Detective, it's kind of deadly serious by comparison. Um, but it also doesn't feel too bleak for us in the audience, even if it does for the character in the show and night country definitely has some bleakness in it for sure it doesn't help that the sun sets at the beginning of the first episode and we're told it won't rise again for quite some time as the show is set in northern alaska in december jody foster is a cop in the fictional town of ennis and of course she's great she's a hardened cop here she's come a long way since playing the wide-eyed rookie clarice starling in silence of the lambs great to see her again she and a state trooper played by pro boxer kali reese are about to embark on a pretty bonkers case by the looks of it uh, a bunch of research scientists working in their kind of self-contained research facility have suddenly all gone missing. There's also a cold case involving a murdered woman that Reese thinks might be involved. Uh, it's the kind of case she won't give up on, even though some time has passed and everyone else has moved on. So it's always dark. It's remote. It's very cold. It's a good setting for something like this. There's some other characters in the little small town. John Hawks is another cop, for example. He's always welcome in whatever I'm watching. He's a Hall of Fame, that guy, except we know his name now. Uh, Fiona Shaw, who was amazing as Fleabag's therapist, plays a lady who I guess lives on the edge of town and makes a horrific discussion out on the frozen tundra. Uh, Jodie Foster has a daughter. We learn a bit of their backstory in episode one. Hawks has a son who's also on the police force. And that guy has a wife and a kid. So there's a few characters in this small town. It's also the town nearest the research station has a mine. So that a lot of the townsfolk are miners. And you can sort of bet dollars to donuts if you watch True Detective before. That something shady will be going on in that mine. And a lot of those guys seem pretty rough. Although some also seem really gentle. Like the dude that Reese goes to visit in the first episode. I thought it was a good introductory episode, Brett. They set up a lot of stuff to get the story going. I'm excited to see where it goes and how it gets there. What did you think? I really, really, really enjoyed it. First off, I love stuff that's set in the winter, yep. and which you'd think, given that we live in Winnipeg, 
and I'm not saying this to poo-poo my own city, and we, like, there are, <laughs> there are places in Canada that get hammered by winter in much different ways than we do. We, like, we don't get the snow that a lot of places in Canada get, but we do often have that deep cold that lasts a long time. This winter has been unusually mild, but I enjoy watching stuff that's set in the winter Especially in the winter, like okay. I have, like I, I just recently rewatched *The Gray* once right, again, right. the Liam Neeson movie, and that's become almost an annual tradition in January. On like a cold, cold January Saturday night, I like to watch *The Gray*, and we just had our first super cold Saturday night, and um, not as cold as out at some places in Alberta, mind you, but still pretty cold. And uh, so I enjoyed that, and uh, I enjoy. Crime stuff. I've talked about that Icelandic show Trapped repeatedly over the years. And the first season is set in winter during a storm. So I don't know. I I think uh, maybe it feels like I'm not watching something fantastical. I'm watching something that feels closer to home. I don't know. I can't really explain it. I just enjoy it. But in this particular kind of story, I think I enjoy how... I don't know if claustrophobic is the word I want to use, but... The remoteness, uh, the idea that these people are in this self-contained research facility, and that's essentially it. Like, they're, where else are they going to go? And uh, I, I enjoy the darkness of it all. Like, it, it just adds all of these, as you put pointed out, it's kind of bleak and scary. And uh, when I liked the mystery of I, w- I wasn't expect like I obviously we're going to find out what happened to the people in this first episode, but I didn't. I don't know what I was in- expecting. I, I didn't really read up anything on it. I didn't even watch the full trailer. Same. So uh, I I quite enjoyed the mystery that revealed itself in that first episode. And I also liked. I don't know if you picked up on this. There's a really subtle moment. It's a, it has to be a nod where there's a bunch of movies on the shelf, and one of them that is sort of front and center was the thing. Oh, I could see that. How could you not though, right? Yeah. Because and it's that seems it doesn't even seem like oh, the producers put it there as a nod to the thing. You would believe that if you were an actual arctic research scientist, those guys would like to watch that movie yeah. because it's set in their world. <laughs> For Except sure. on the exact opposite end of the planet, but still. Yeah, so I enjoyed that they included that. And actually I like the what you, you you went into that even a little deeper than I thought. I thought it was just a playful nod, but of course they would want to watch that kind of a movie. So yeah, first episode, super good. I will say that season two, I didn't hate season two as much as like it it took a beating. It had such high expectations going in, though, because season one was such a force. Yeah. And now, to be fair, there were a lot of things in season two that were really dumb, but I quite enjoyed uh, Colin Farrell in particular. Was uh, I thought he was outstanding in that show. And yeah, season three was great. And season one, I remember the first half of season one is some of the most compelling television I've ever watched. I think it kind of lost its way a little bit. For me, towards the end, like as I once it finished, I know I remember ranting and raving about how great the whole thing was. But as I reflect upon the finale, I don't think the finale quite landed for me. People were throwing their own expectations onto that series in a way that the producers never intended. And so the and of course, the finale was, you know, finished before the first episode ever aired. So it was kind of a winless situation for them in that regard. Yeah. But thanks for for reminding us of how the landscape has changed because I forgot that. Yeah, that was that was it was at the beginning of the. 
The McConaughey-sense or reconnaissance, yes. The reconnaissance. <laughs> and HBO had sent me a screener DVD that had no information on it, and the actual episodes didn't have, like, the, the opening credits or anything. That part hadn't been finished yet, but they send out screeners anyway sometimes. Um, and so I was watching it. had no idea what it was. I was just like, oh, I need something for the show. I'll watch whatever this true detective might be. And I, even at the end of the first episode, I was like, I think it's Matthew McConaughey, but that can't be. He's a movie star. He wouldn't be on a TV show. I was even like, why even is Woody Harrelson on this thing? And then I looked at him. I was like, oh, it is Matthew McConaughey because hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen a Matthew McConaughey movie in years because he did all those crappy rom coms that I never watched. So I was, wasn't so familiar with his work at the time, and certainly wouldn't have guessed he was about to be a TV star. So yeah, there you go. What do you got against Matthew McConaughey rom-coms? Actually, he's so charming. I think I am going to watch a bunch of them. We watched uh, one with we watched some Sandra Bullock and uh, what's his name Van Wilder thing last week, where they got married or something. Can't remember the proposal. Van Wilder? That's what you're going with to, for Ryan Reynolds? That's I was. Totally, uh, <laughs> I will. I can never remember the name Ryan Reynolds, just like I can almost never remember the name Ryan Gosling. So I go Van Wilder and now Ken with Barbie for Ryan Gosling, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's great. So from one winter, is the the next one that we're, we're yeah. going to take a break here, yep. but it's also a winter show? All mm-hmm. right. So from one winter cop show to another winter cop show, one has begun and one has come to an end. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And Fargo wrapped up its fifth season this week. And what a season it was. When the violence comes, comes fast. Did I draw first? Did he? Fargo the Show is based sort of on Fargo the Movie from 1996, which is one of my favorites. The show is an anthology series, so each season is very much its own thing. New characters, new stories, and a lot of references to Coen Brothers movies. This season was very much a mashup of Fargo the Movie and No Country for Old Men, and a lot of people would say, well, those are the two best Coen Brothers movies, so kind of makes sense. Season four a couple years ago was very disappointing, falling far short of the first three seasons and really veering into a caricature of itself. So this return to form in season five was very welcome. Some are saying it's the best season yet. I'd probably have to rewatch season two to really judge it like that, but it's definitely up there. Juno Temple from Ted Lasso was the hero this season. She played a Minnesota mom with a secret pass that gets blown up when her monster of an ex-husband comes after her. He's a North Dakota sheriff played by John Hamm, and he was a really scary guy, and credit to John Hamm. I know he's, you know, he kind of shot to prominence in Mad Men, obviously, where he played a very serious man on a very serious show. But since Mad Men ended nine years ago, he's played a lot of comedy parts to the point where I kind of forgot that he was also really good as a dramatic actor, which he got to flex those muscles here. Um, Fargo has a lot of elements of both comedy and drama, and both Juno Temple and John Hamm were great across all the different tones of the show. Uh, and that was the core story, and then all the subplots were kind of born out of that. Temple's family life with Jennifer Jason Lee as her monster-in-law. Other cops tracking down the violence at Temple and Ham leaving their wake. There were some other bad guys. There was one truly menacing figure who was not too dissimilar to Javier Bardem's guy in No Country for Old Men, including a bizarre haircut. And there were some dumb bad guys which is a Coen Brothers staple, including Steve from Stranger Things, who was fantastic and actually elevated a, a dumb bad guy part to something quite a bit more. He was really good in this show, I thought. Uh, it was an interesting story, well told, fun characters, a stylish production as always, and thematically relevant 
different. Each season is set in a different part of the Midwest in a different year. Season four was set in the 50s in Kansas, which was pretty f- removed from Fargo, North Dakota, and from Fargo the movie. This season, set in 2019 in Minnesota and North Dakota, felt a lot more like Fargo. Um, and it was also in the winter. And being, you know, 2019, there's a lot of mega stuff in it as it pertains to Ham's sheriff character. So aside from a stellar fictional crime story, there was also social commentary on top of it. Good stuff all around. Glad to see the show kind of fulfilling its potential once again. I was pretty down on the future of the show after that fourth season, but now I can't wait for season six. So if you can check out season five of Fargo, go for it. And to be clear, these are all like self-contained yeah. seasons, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Each so. one is separate. You don't have to watch the other ones to watch the new ones. You could just start at the beginning of any season. Okay, because somebody was just telling me the other day that this season of Fargo in particular is super good. And I had no idea that Juno Temple was in it. Uh, the, as you mentioned, she was in Ted Lasso, and she had a very English accent. Yes, and she presented at the Emmys last weekend with her English accent, and my jaw done dropped, Brett, because I didn't know she was British. Oh! Because she's been, everybody in Fargo does the, oh yeah, you betcha, yeah, fake Minnesota accent, right? So, yeah. and it was like, oh, real voice, whoa, what? <laughs> what is going on here? All right, I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to tell you about uh, I started watching a cool show on Disney Plus if you're a fan of like fantasy kind of shows. Uh, this one debuted back in mid-December based on a big, a huge series of young adult books set in a world of fantasy and Greek mythology. Percy, you are special. When you're ready to hear what the gods have in store for you, they'll tell you. Percy, the stories I have told you about Greek gods and monsters. They are real. This is crazy. You are a half-blood, and half-bloods are not safe in the world. Everything has been training for what's still ahead of you. It is Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Percy Jackson, your father needs your help. The master bolt has been stolen. If you don't return the bolt, there will be war. That is your quest. So the books from author Rick Rorden started in uh, 2005. There are now six books in the primary series. They've sold over 180 million copies. There are a couple of spin-off series too, but safe to say this series is a big deal. They made two movies in 2010 and 2013. Neither of them got good reviews. They did relatively well at the box office, earning around 200 million worldwide each, but that's nowhere the success of something like a Harry Potter. So the TV show is going to be eight episodes, one per week since its release on December 19th. The finale is set for January 30th, and so far it's at 96% on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics, 83% with the audience. So in a nutshell, this show is about a kid named Percy Jackson who discovers, who learns that he is the son of a god, of a Greek god. That makes him a demigod or a half-blood. And he gets sort of pulled into that world and he goes off to this like training ground or a school for demigods and then he is dispatched on a quest to retrieve the master bolt, to retrieve Zeus's master lightning bolt. And... The my understanding is that, like I saw the move, the first movie, the 2010 movie. I didn't mind it, but it wasn't all that great. But what they did there is they they made the kids older. Like in the in this show, they're they're kids. You know, they're twelve. It looks like they're I don't know, tw- 
11, 12, 13, who knows, it doesn't matter. But they're actual kids in that, whereas in the, the movie, they were younger, they were more, they were closer to adults, if not young adults already. And apparently that didn't work. And one of my buddies, his son is a huge fan of the books and he feels like had they done he says had they made a better movie and done it right it would have been bigger than harry potter so that's a pretty bold claim for that but so far i'm five episodes in and i'm looking forward to the the final three episodes it's a lot of fun so again the finale for that is on january 30th it's got super visual effects it's got a good cast the performances are all great and uh you know it's cool to be able to enjoy, to see something get readapted, like for the fans of that book series who were probably disappointed with the movies, I'm sure they're mostly thrilled with what they're seeing so far. At least I would hope so. So if you want to check out Percy Jackson and the Olympians, it airs on Disney Plus. New episodes arrive on Tuesday nights. Up next, we're going to learn more about Jason Statham and the Bees. And I still have a whole bunch of shows I want to rattle off for you. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and I saw Jason Statham's latest action movie, The Beekeeper. Repeat after me. I will never steal from the weak and the vulnerable again. There's going to be a fire. Okay, thanks. This is a beekeeper. A special program outside the chain of command. When the system is corrupt, I corrected it. He's stolen millions from people who've worked hard all their lives. For these things. Until they fail, then you have me. The Beekeeper, rated R, only in theaters, January 12th. Statham plays, as you heard, a beekeeper, and he's got a neighbor played by Felicia Rashad, a.k.a. Mrs. Huxtable, and she's scammed out of all her money by some real jerks. She ends up dead, and then he goes out for revenge, and that is basically the plot of the movie. It's that simple, just John Wick style. And if Statham was just a regular guy who likes bees, it would have been super cool, but it turns out he's also another kind of beekeeper, which is some black ops government assassin group or some such, and it's also very John Wick in that regard, where it's a bunch of nonsense explaining why this guy is so good at fighting and is trying to create this secret world of assassins, that type of thing. Statham fights his way up the food chain of the bad guy organization, which is led by Josh Hutcherson from the Hunger Games, and his right-hand man is Jeremy Irons. Hutcherson and everyone underneath him are real D-bag types. Statham looks like a farmer, so that's sort of the aesthetic of the movie. Not hard to root for the farmer. Um, there are also some FBI agents on his trail. One of them is the daughter of Mrs. Huxtable. And the movie just chugs along real quickly and, you know... While some of the non-action scenes are nothing to write home about, there is enough humor or fun crime movie tropes that you don't get too bored waiting for the next big punch-up. It is the action we came for, though, and the movie does not disappoint. It's got a lot of everything, but whereas, you know, John Wick was mostly gun-fu, the beekeeper's more about punching and kicking. And, you know, I could watch Jason Statham punch guys all day long. He's really good at it, and like Keanu, he's kind of ageless, too. So some of the violence, though it was a little gruesome, especially if you're sensitive to seeing fingers come off I actually could have done without that most of it's not too bad I had to look away once or twice but that was it the third act was also kind of weird there's a lot of brand new characters turning up as the movie goes along because he keeps killing everybody and in the last half hour we get some new blood and the stakes become quite large much bigger than you would think at the beginning of the movie 
And honestly, it's the sort of thing that might, you would think, come at the end of a trilogy, not the first movie, if that makes sense. There's also kind of an abruptness to the end of the movie that makes me wonder if they did change something major in the editing or if the story is just so kind of one note that when it comes right down to it, there was nothing left to say. I don't know. Didn't stick around to see if there was a scene after the credits, but it, it, it just ends abruptly I thought and I was like oh maybe they're just trying to you know hedge their bets in case there's a sequel or something uh, is it the sort of movie you need to run to theaters to see no I mean don't get me wrong it'll be more fun to watch on a big screen but it's not necessary like it is for movies like Avatar or superhero movies or Star Wars that type of thing definitely though check it out when it comes to streaming three and a half couch cushions out of five for The Beekeeper and I can confirm for you there's nothing uh, after no extras during the credits or after the credits. Right on. Good. All right. Yeah, and you're right. Jason Statham is so good at that. When he first, when I first saw him do, actually, I think the first time he did anything, you want me to turn off your mic there? Okay. <clears throat> I think the first time I saw Jason Statham do anything sort of physical, because we've discussed this before, I was first two movies, the first two movies that I know him from, at least, were Guy Ritchie movies. Uh, which were, of course, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and Snatch. But he did another movie called Mean Machine, or Mean Machine, which I think is, it's like a soccer version of The Longest Yard. And uh, Jason Statham plays this, like, psycho goalie. And he, I, so he's got his shirt off, and then that's when I realized, dude is ripped! Like, what is up with that? And then he pops, and then he shows up as the transporter, and everything we knew about Jason Statham forever changed after that. So, yeah, I would look forward to seeing The Beekeeper one day. Got to tell you about what's new at the movies this weekend, starting with ISS. This is your home away from home. We share everything up here. Welcome! You're aware. One. Whoa. We got to get up now, guys. War has broken out below, and we were told to take the ISS by any means necessary. The Russians got the same orders as us. We're evolved species. Theodore, only in theaters January 19th. So tensions flare in the near future aboard the International Space Station as a worldwide conflict breaks out on Earth. Reeling from this, the astronauts receive orders from the ground, take control of the station by any means necessary. So first of all, how freaky would it be to be up in the space station to look down on your home planet and see it? Bombs exploding. Yeah, I've seen the trailer twice in theaters, and it freaked me out both times. I was like, nope, don't care for this at all. Also, it cracks me up going back to, I think, Armageddon, where whenever it's a space movie, they're in space, and so then somebody pulls out a gun, and it's like, why are you bringing a gun into space? <laughs> it's asinine. <laughs> so weird. Oh, that was that Armageddon in particular. I sort of understood the need to have a gun under lock and key, but when they pulled out that Gatling gun... On the the at the asteroid. Oh, okay. What? what, what Why would just that? in case there's a, some sort of a Martian on the asteroid? I guess so. That's so funny. Or are you gonna we're gonna blow, we're gonna shoot this thing apart? <laughs> I don't know. Never understood that. <laughs> Let's switch gears from the movies now to the television screen because we just want to wrap up our thoughts on the new show from Marvel featuring an indigenous hero, Echo. Tigers move in silence to catch their prey. Studios Echo. 
So we went through this last week, what it's about, who's in it, etc. Just a quick recap that it stars uh, Laqua Cox as someone named Maya Lopez, who is an indigenous Latin American, who her character is deaf and is an amputee, missing part of her right leg. And the actor is also deaf and missing her half of her right leg. And uh, she's pretty good with the action stuff. I, I thought, honestly, the first time we saw her, she first popped up in Hawkeye. I thought the 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 prosthetic leg was a visual effect. I didn't realize that she was really uh, like that. So kudos to her. So in this series, whereas in the first one, she was in New York, Hell's Kitchen kind of stuff. She's gone back home to Oklahoma to regroup, to try to take down Kingpin's network, but her past soon catches up to her. And, um, yeah, they worked really hard with the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma. wasn't shot in Oklahoma, but they worked with the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma to make sure that everything was represented properly, correctly. Five episodes. Uh, it's at 73% with the critics on Rotten Tomatoes. 63% audience score. So, I mean, that's not bad, but it's not great. So, Bron, what did you think overall? I liked it quite a bit. I think um, I liked the first couple of episodes more than I did as it went along kind of a thing. I also think if this had come out at a different time when it was sort of the only thing going on, I would have liked it a lot more, but when it was also up against uh, Reacher and Fargo and now True Detective, those are like really great shows and this, you know, it just makes this one look, makes Echo look more average and normal than it is. But for an MCU show, which a lot of them have been bad, I thought this one was pretty good. I like the uh, lower stakes and just the street level energy of it all compared to going out in space or screwing around with uh, time like in the Loki show and stuff like the, the things that give me a headache. Yep. This was like, ooh, this is better. This is like a family drama in a small Midwestern town uh, that also has some, uh, you know, with the kingpin and stuff like that. So it was kind of mostly all, you know, realistic as far as an MCU show is concerned. And I thought her performance was fantastic. I thought the action when we saw it was really good. A little bit could have used a little bit more maybe in the last couple of episodes. I think the train robbery in the second episode is maybe my favorite part of the whole thing. But that was also set at night. And I think uh, snow and night we've determined have been uh, things that make us enjoy shows more for some reason. So uh, overall, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I, I'm sort of with you. I think it, it's good. I didn't think it was great. And you mentioned the, the train robbery. That was a cool sequence, but the... I don't know, you could tell it was a visual effect, and of course it's going to be a visual effect. But even during her fight with Daredevil, there are a couple of shots where he's fully CG, and I don't understand what the deal is with that. Hmm. And there, it's just, it's, there, there are spots where you can tell like the, something's missing there, because it was originally supposed to be six episodes, and they trimmed it down to five. So what did they take out, or what did they redo, what did they fix? To try to make it five instead of six. I could have used a whole episode of just biscuits running around trying to get something done. That would have been fun. Well, they never explained. How do you, like, you can't have a character and call him Biscuits and have him be this goofy character and not explain how he got the yeah. name Biscuits. Like, so maybe that was... Season two. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the indigenous component and the culture on display, I thought they really... It, it made me emotional. Like the finale in particular, I was welled up at one point in that. I thought they did a really great job, and it's nice to see that they worked so hard with the Choctaw Nation to get it right. And uh, so they, they did all that stuff well. I thought the performances were great from across the board. I yeah. thought the cast was fantastic. But the show itself, it just, I don't know, it didn't, it promised, it's marketing promised a hard-hitting, super-violent beat him up and that is not what this show was no it was as you close. pointed out it was a family drama yeah which yeah. is fine 
And they, and they changed her powers. In the comics, she has that Taskmaster power, the, the mimic reflexes thing. And in this, they, they turned her in. I won't spoil it if you, have, if you want to watch it. But they turned her into something different, which I guess is fine, too. But they, I, would, I was hoping to see the other power. I don't know. But anyway, Marvel's Echo. Good, not great. Fair to sum it up like that? Fair to sum it up like that. All right. Up next, i got to tell you about a couple more shows that I've been meaning to tell you about for a few weeks, but one also that just wrapped up this week. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. Got a couple more shows I want to tell you about here that I'm excited about that I quite enjoyed this past week on Apple TV+. Plus. The first season of a show I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed it. It came to a close. It's Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. Everything you don't want to believe exists. Holy... If you want to save millions of lives... We can use some help. So this takes place in the world of Godzilla and Kong in the Monsterverse. After the world-shattering revelation that monsters are real, two siblings follow in their father's footsteps to uncover their family's connection to the secretive organization known as Monarch. So we know a little bit about this organization from the various movies, from Godzilla, from Godzilla King of the Monsters, from Kong Skull Island, and from the latest one, Godzilla versus Kong, or Kong versus Godzilla, whatever it was called. Uh, I can't remember. I can never remember off the top of my head. Does it matter? And uh, this show adds all kinds of history and all kinds of layers into something that I didn't really think I'd be interested in. I was really captivated, particularly, I think the first half of the season was more compelling. The second half of the season, I felt like it started to get just a little bit sillier. And of course, you ended up having to have the big monster smashy smashy. But overall, this was a fun show. And I like I, it came out on Fridays and I watched it on Fridays or if it. Or maybe it arrived on Thursdays, but it was too late for me to watch it, so I just waited. I liked watching it. Whatever. I always watched it first thing when I got home on Friday. And uh, so I recommend, if you enjoy those movies at all, you will enjoy this show because you still get monster stuff, but there is way more intelligence on display in this show. Like, those movies are fun, but they're dumb. This is not a dumb show, so I quite enjoyed Monarch Legacy of Monsters, and uh, hopefully there will be a second season. Also got to mention this. The crown doesn't ask existential questions of itself. Perhaps it should. Perhaps now is the time. This is what we expect to be the longest serving monarch in history. People will want to celebrate your reign and mark the end of an era. But what about the life I put aside? The woman I put aside? When I became queen. Season six of The Crown. It was divided in two parts and the second part arrived in December. And I like screamed through the first 
three seasons in anticipation of the fourth season. Like I, I hadn't watched the first three seasons, but then when season four came out, there was so much buzz about Princess Diana being in season four, and I thought I should watch this because I've never heard anything bad. And sure enough, those first three seasons were great. Season four was great, and seasons five and particularly season six did not get nearly as well reviewed as the previous seasons. And I think part of it is it feels almost voyeuristic or weird. Like the first two seasons are, it's cool because you just learn a lot of stuff you might not have known, but watching these last couple of seasons, it maybe just hits a little too close to home for people. But I thought like the first few seasons, the acting is great. The writing is great. The sets are beautiful. The cinematography is fantastic. And the final shot of the season I think was a really touching tribute to the queen. And I finally got around to finishing a show. I started back in October when it came out the third season or part three, as they called it Lupin. Se faire cambrioler est une expérience désagréable. Et ce, afin de vous éviter les alertes d'une surprise, j'ai pris la décision de vous prévenir à l'avance que je m'apprête à dérober votre perle noire. Lupin, it's a French show about a master gentleman thief. I had a little bit of trouble remembering the first two parts because part one came out in January of 2021. Part two came out in June of 2021. I can barely remember what happened. And now in part three, he's gone into hiding and he has to stay away from his wife and his son until he hatches a plan for a big job that could set the three of them up for life. First two parts were five episodes each. Part three is seven episodes. This is a fun show, and it's in a beautiful setting. It's set in Paris. The actor, Omar C plays the main character, Hassan Diop, who models himself after Lupin, who is a character in a, a massive series of books that go back 100 years in France about this master thief. And even though the stakes are pretty high in this third season, he still has fun. He still pulls off his scams in in impossible fashion. Like every episode, it's just, it's a fun adventure, but it has some serious stakes to it. And it does a perfect job of blending those two. And it leaves the door open for a fourth part. That hasn't been confirmed yet, but the way, it's a massive cliffhanger. So hopefully they get another part. Both of those shows, by the way, are on Netflix. The Crown and Lupin and Monarch Legacy of Monsters is on Apple TV+. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.